you would, continue looking in the book of Acts chapter 8, like Ryan read before, our sermon this morning will come from starting in verses 26 through verses 40. It's easy for us to immediately engage with this text and look at the characters and try to gain something from them. Or look at the places and see what's happening or maybe even place ourselves in the midst of the text. What I hope we'll see this morning is that in the midst of these amazing characters and these amazing circumstances and in this unique providential place, we actually have behind it, coming through it, the, not only the power of God, but a clear glimpse of God's sovereign hand over all that he is doing. Many times you'll see within this text where characters are going different places or they're being talked to in certain ways, or they're encountering other people. And what I hope that we'll see together this morning is that God has control over all of it, that behind all these human things, there is a sovereign, powerful God who is working within this text. Many parts of the Bible itself will kind of seep up through the text. So one of the things that we talk about all the time are are symbols or illustrations or allusions where we can engage with the text and go, that seems familiar or that seems like I've heard that before. This text itself will have many of those things. Uh, One in particular, it's what is called echoes of the Old Testament shining through. You know what an echo is. It's like when you go into an arena of your favorite team, and not only do you hear the sounds that are present within that arena, but also when you go into that arena, you you hear what seems like sounds and images from the past. Championships that may have been won, you see glimmers of banners that, that rain and remind you that there's something here that isn't new, something here that's been happening before. So within our text this morning, we're going to see different things that come from the book of Isaiah, where in Isaiah... Words like eunuchs are being talked about or places like Ethiopia are being brought up. We'll see a fulfillment of maybe one of those small books that we too often overlook, Zephaniah, where just in Zephaniah there are many things that are promised that are going to happen. It says that Gaza is going to be deserted. There's going to be a new desert place in the midst. People are going to be driven out of the land only to come back into the land. That God will drive them out of the land in such a way that it will humble them to the point where they are now on their knees worshiping a God who presents himself as powerful and majestic. Prophets are brought up in Zephaniah that are dictated and shown to people through the wind, it seems like, or the spirit is guiding these prophets. And from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, God's scattered people will oddly and uniquely start to bring offerings to him. From afar, they'll come and try to worship him. Even in the Psalms, we see that Ethiopia will stretch out her hand towards God. So as we engage this text, as you look at it, and as I preach it to you, it would be easy for you to just jump right into verse 26, pick up right after where Philip was left off in 25. I want to caution you, listen for the echoes 
of the past in this text. Let, let God's word resonate and bring out new life. It, it's almost like inklings or little tiny lights that are blinking up here that actually make when we walk into this arena, verses 26 through 40, it makes it even brighter. When you place all that has happened within the past of God's testimony, we're also met with what's happening currently. You have the Messiah who was crucified for his people mocked and said that here's the king of the Jews. And that person came back to life and was resurrected. And then he ascended into heaven and gave a promise that he was going to send the spirit. And it wasn't much longer after that when his spirit arrived and fueled with unnatural, supernatural tongues and abilities for people to spread the gospel. But it wasn't just the power to spread the gospel, but his message of where the gospel was going to spread was actually coming true too. And in Acts 1 verse 8, it talks about how it's going to start in Jerusalem and seep into Judea and go further into Samaria. And then it's going to extend bit by bit to the end of the earth. And so we have our text being engaged with this morning where it starts out that what is happening here is the sovereign God is not done working on the things that he promised that he said he was going to do. So what we see here is that there is a movement of God's majesty and a movement of his works. And it's going to show itself first in our text that there's going to be a movement of the spirit. Whereas before God was spreading his amazing work through persecution by, by suffering of his people. More people would latch on. It's an amazing, ironic thing that people saw the sufferings of other people. And what happened inside of them is they wanted that. And then here in the midst of chapter 8, there's going to be a subtle shift where persecution was taking the gospel to the north. And now God's spirit is going to push the movement of the advancing gospel into the south. So first, what we see in this text is that there is movement of the Spirit at work. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down to Jerusalem. Just an amazing circumstance that an angel of the Lord appears to Philip. You might read the Bible often and go, yeah, that's what happens. The God himself appears through mouthpieces like angels. It wasn't many books before that that happened. But if you just meditate on the fact that Philip was doing amazing things up north and then an angel of the Lord appeared to him and shifted all of his ministry. It's amazing what happens when we think about what angels do for us. We, it's it's normal to be reminded that God speaks to us through circumstances or through trials or clearly through his word or maybe his spoken word to us. But here an angel of the Lord is telling Philip to do something. That's not unusual. We see that in Hebrews where the angels are constantly serving the plans of God by serving God's elect, bringing all of that circumstance to a more glorification of the Lord. But the angel doesn't just talk to him and encourage him and say, you're doing a good job. But what the angel does is stop him suddenly in his tracks and he says, I know that you've been going north and now go south. And not just anywhere, the angel of the Lord tells him to go south to a road that is much like a desert. 
Go towards Gaza, this city that had once been destroyed, now rebuilt a little bit further down the road. So he doesn't just tell them generally, hey, make your way to, you know, Gaza. I don't know, I-25 might help out. But he tells them specifically, it's a desert place. Inklings, bit by bit. The desert is now going to see the Spirit's movement at work. There are also a couple of options where he could go. There are many ways to get to Gaza, right? It's not the most unheard of place in the world. It's the last watering place before you reach the Nile. But he tells him to go to a certain place. And I think what's amazing here and what's encouraging and inspirational to us and certainly instructive for my own heart this week is that he just tells Philip to go. He doesn't say, do A because of B, because of C, and then you'll see that D will work out. He just says, go. And what does Philip do? Does he ask questions? Does he say, wait a minute, I've got a crusade coming this week up in Samaria. Hold on. A lot of things are going here. Do you not see what you're doing here? Philip just responds. And he goes, when the Lord speaks to us, he's not asking for permission. He's not bartering. Well, here's what I think. By the way, I'm sovereign. I know how all things are going to work together. But what do you think? He's just... The Lord is telling him through an angel, go, and he does, because behind all of the Lord's words, there are many things that are being placed to and fro in front of him. A friend told me one time about his experience retiring from the military, and then a large circumstance happened where the United States was going back into war in a new place. And because he had a certain trade and he was already retired and a certain talent, he re-enlisted back so that he could go there. And he didn't really know why, except the, the patriotism that was rising up through him wanted him to go. But even as he was there, he's like, you know, I, I know what I'm doing here, but I just wonder the actual purpose of me being here. He was in a place within the military where he sat at a desk, even in a foreign country where the Pentagon set up places where, you know, things like computers could work on behalf of the soldiers. And so he was sitting in one desk and there was another guy sitting at a desk beside him. And after a while he said, you know, we've been talking about the things that we have in common. And I've got to start talking to him about the things that we don't. And bit by bit, conversation by conversation, day by day, week by week, he realized that this person needed what he had, which was the gospel. He didn't know why, he didn't know how, but he knew that his place in going there was for that. Weeks later, the conversations kept going on where the man actually did become a Christian because of this person's testimony and influence where the Lord was using him to lift up Christ in this person's eyes who need him so much. A third character passed by those two offices and was just kind of spouting off, you know, why I don't know what we're doing here, I don't know why we're here. And the guy leans back in his chair and he says, I know why you were here and it was for me to know about why God has always been here. The providence of God is not just about you or your circumstance. The providence of God is what's called his invisible hand at work in everything. Your mindset, someone else's mindset, your circumstance, their circumstance. God, through an angel, told Philip to go south to Gaza, to this random place, because there was going to be a man who was from Ethiopia, a eunuch, who he was divinely going to have a conversation with. 
There was a sovereign encounter brought to the fold here through the movement of the Spirit. So here this man meets, Philip meets the Ethiopian man. Amazing that he's from Ethiopia, right? Where all those echoes continue to lift up. This may pique your interest as you're reminded not only that, but also historically. So outside of Scripture, we we see history kind of testifying to the truth of Scripture. Um, There's a man or historian, poet for most of us, named Homer, who wrote Iliad and the Odyssey. Maybe you were supposed to read it in high school. And then they made spark notes. So you know who he is. It's amazing that Homer, centuries before, often referred to Ethiopia as the end of the earth. And so God sent his servant to talk to a man from Ethiopia. And he wasn't just a man. He was not just Ethiopian by descent, but also he was a eunuch. He was a black man. He was a secretary of the treasury. You know, one of the highest in esteem of a country. And this country was no small peas in Africa. Marvelous and powerful. And so Philip is going to encounter this Ethiopian eunuch. A eunuch, as we all might know, a eunuch is someone who, for various reasons, does not have the reproductive parts that would make him a normal part of society. He was an outcast physically. Many things were were removing him from what other people participated with. Some, Some people are just born that way. You might be born as a eunuch or you might choose to be because you want to serve a kingdom in the in the temple, in the high places. So many people were made eunuchs because, frankly, they couldn't be trusted around other women. What do sinful men want but things that aren't there? Things that aren't theirs. So this man might have been a eunuch by birth, might have been a eunuch by his own choice so that he could serve around the queen, not causing any disturbances towards the kingdom. No descendants would come from him or maybe... Third, the option is he might have been a eunuch because he's around a lot of money. What do, what do sinful people do when they're around a lot of money? They take it. What do they do with it? They build up dynasties for themselves. They give it to their kids. Well, if he can't have any, then he's removed from all that. So here we encounter not just someone who is cut off from the normal things of the world, but it's, it's amazing that he's a eunuch because he was longing for things that he couldn't yet achieve. Many people read this passage and they see him not only as an Ethiopian eunuch, but they see him as an Ethiopian eunuch, a proselyte, someone who converts from pagan worship to Judaism, someone who sees this mono God, this one God, unlike anywhere else in the world, and and something inside them goes, I want that. And so here he may, by some interpreters, be a proselyte where he would go from Gentile to Jew, Except there's an issue there. He, he's got to be circumcised and baptized to give him full rights to the temple. But a eunuch, as he might know, according to Deuteronomy, a eunuch wasn't allowed in the temple. So maybe if he's not a proselyte, maybe he is a proselyte and he's a full convert to Judaism, even though he's a eunuch. Maybe he's what's called a God-fearer. It's, it's kind of like being a believer, but not all the way. It's really wanting to, but not being accepted by the other side. I I want to go into this church, but they won't have me in this church. 
but I still try to worship like they worship. So that's not unusual because God's kingdom, at least in influence, was reaching the ends of the earth. We, we see that through the influence of people like Solomon or other kingdoms where the God of the universe, the true God, was rumored about and feared. And somehow, I say somehow, sovereignly, providentially, it reached this man in Ethiopia. And out of his desire to worship the Lord, to, to continue to fear the Lord, he used his prominence in this place, in this kingdom, to go a thousand miles from Ethiopia up to worship in Jerusalem. And so we catch him as he goes up a thousand miles and then is making his thousand mile trek back to Ethiopia and he's met sovereignly with God's agent, Philip, right here in our testimony. If this doesn't just testify that God actually knows what he's doing in their lives and in the same way that God actually knows what he's doing in your life, I don't know what will encourage you more. The Lord of the universe is arranging all these things for his glory. So we see that he encounters this Ethiopian eunuch, a God-fear. But he doesn't just encounter him. The spirit now speaks to Philip, not to be done with. The Lord sent an angel to tell him to go towards Gaza. And now that he's met up providentially with this eunuch, God then speaks to him in the spirit. says, go over and join this chariot in your text. What could be a more clear definition? Hard to fathom the emotions that might be inside this person. Go and join the chariot. That person's impressive. I'm just a disciple. These chariots don't just ride by themselves. Remember, this is the head of the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia. Those guys don't just ride in one suburban. It's like a caravan of prominence that is going through this desert place. But he says, go and join him in this chariot. Ryan's sermon last week said that God, in many ways, acted like this silent actor, still orchestrating all things, but, but almost from a distance, though very present, just not as clear and pronounced. But here we see just verses later where God is not silent at all. God is not just speaking, go and join that chariot, but God is providentially moving by his spirit all these pieces into place to bring himself more glory. God is the main instrument and he's bringing his sword. And what might be testified in Zephaniah might bring on terror. What his sword is bringing now is hope and joy towards this eunuch through the agent of Philip. He's orchestrating all these things. And to the world, it might look random or circumstantial. If you're a doubter of the faith, you might go, I mean, basically, they're just describing what happened. Yeah, a guy named Philip went down and an Ethiopian guy just came together. That's just how it happened on that day. We, need, we know more that God is actually ordaining and orchestrating all these things in order to spread out his gospel more and more. So we see that there is movement by the Spirit. And, and now we're seeing that there's not just movement by the Spirit. It's not just the Spirit doing things and orchestrating things. But now we see that with the Spirit comes a message by the Savior this message of the Savior that we see starting secondly in verse 30. It reminds me at least of a quote said by John Calvin that God does not bestow 
his spirit on his people in order to set aside his word. But rather when God sets his spirit on people, it renders the word fruitful. God is not just bringing his spirit into the circumstances of all of this just to be present, but he's bringing his spirit into this so that the message of the Savior can actually be lifted up to this eunuch. Verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Philip, again, shows just pure, simple obedience. God said through his angel to go south, and he just went south. God then says in his spirit, go and join him in the chariot. And he doesn't do anything but just go. And in fact, it it says he didn't just go, he runs to him. What what a symptom of obedience that that I I wish I practiced more often. When the Lord says this, I just do it. I don't question. I don't bargain. I don't try to trade. I remember in uh, playing baseball in high school, I I would have leg cramps a lot. I remember praying, God, if if you take away my cramps this game, I will read the Proverbs every day this month. That is not how the sovereign God acts. Our God is one who speaks Our God is one who brings truth. Our God is one who orchestrates all things for his glory. He's not asking us questions. He tells Philip to go, and Philip goes. And Philip, amazingly, supernaturally, God has placed all these things where where Philip reacts to the Spirit's movement. Philip reacts to what God has just obviously played in front of him. This man from Ethiopia back towards Ethiopia is reading from the Bible. And Philip asked him, do you understand what it means? How many times have we seen a friend, a family member with a Bible on their desk or a Bible on their shelf and just taking for granted that they might know what it says? Rather, Philip here is seeing those two things happen and he goes, Do you understand what it means? Because if you understand what the Bible means, you have the wisdom of all life. Many of you might come in here this morning with frustration and anxiety and confusion. How many of us have not come in here like that? And it's the word where we get God's goodness and understanding of what life means. Here you have a eunuch who longed to worship the Lord in the temple. And he went there and he paid money to get there. And he went a thousand miles away and he wasn't let in. What in the world is happening? I I just made myself look like an idiot. I'm the treasurer of a mighty kingdom. And they wouldn't let me in. And Philip comes up to him and says, do you understand what you were reading? What a question. The way that the question is written frames and indicates doubt on Philip's part. He knew that this guy had no idea what he was reading. And, And amazingly, This person responds to Philip and says, how can I unless someone guides me? 
the most wonderful softball to anyone who is ever wanting to testify to who Christ is. Tell me what you know. There's work here that is so amazing and it should instruct us of just what power looks like when two people come together and read the Bible together. I had coffee with a brother this week who talked about a man in this church who just likes to meet up with younger men and read the Bible together and talk about it. And this man said he's grown in just a couple of years exponentially more than he ever has in his life. By what? That guy being a genius? Maybe he is, but that's not the point. What? By that guy caring for him? Maybe he did, but that's not the issue. The issue is that when they come together and God speaks through his word, the soul is lifted up and built up more and more. Testimony of testimony we could go through where someone just met you and said, let's read the Bible together. Or maybe you just sat down and read these verses or these chapters for the first time and you said, I didn't know that God loved me in such a way that he would crucify his own son. There's a, there's a book that we have out in the book nook called One-to-One Bible Readings written by David Helm. Basically, you can buy the book, and I think you should, and you should read it. It's like 80 pages long, but here's the premise of the book. You should read the Bible with people. It might be the most increasingly joyful thing that you can do in discipling other people and be discipled. How many times have I sat just at Starbucks and have read Galatians with someone else, and I, I think I knew more than them, but the whole time I'm getting more, I think, than I've ever gotten before just by reading it out loud. So here... Philip meets the eunuch, and the eunuch says, how can I understand this unless someone guides me? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the spoken Word of God, an effectual means of converting and convicting sinners, not just for those who are unsaved, but also for everyone who calls themselves a Christian. The Word of God being poured into your life is ultimately what lifts your life up. And sovereignly, God is placing Philip and this man not just together so that they can have a good time, but together so that they can read the word and see how it testifies about a wonderful Savior. It gets even more amazing when you dig into the text here. God's providence is seen not by a man's choice of the text, but just amazingly that man here is reading from not just the Bible, not just the Old Testament, Not just Isaiah, but Isaiah 53. One of the most staggering and important and life-altering chapters in all of the Bible. Providentially, God loved this eunuch so much that when he opened the word, it was there and it was talking about God. In 1857, Charles Spurgeon was scheduled to preach in a large, amazing theater. And so a couple days before, he wanted to go just test out the acoustics. So he goes up there and he just wants to see how it will sound so it's not a shocking thing to him. And he just says very loudly, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1, 29. Behold, the Lamb of God. And at that instant, there was someone in the back who was just working as workers do when they're getting something ready for a big event. And that man heard what he thought. He didn't know Spurgeon was there. That man heard what he thought was the voice of heaven. And it was. 
Spurgeon may have been the mouthpiece, but God himself was speaking, behold, the Lamb of God. And that man dropped everything, went home and wept and wept and was convicted of his own sin just by the spoken word of God going out. And he came back and wanted to talk to one of the pastors at that place because he was converted by the voice of God speaking to him. The word is powerful, and here its power is showing the message of the Savior. The sinner of this story is reading of the Old Testament. Here is a man who is actually using the Scripture, sitting on a seat in the ancient equivalent of a souped-up SUV. And this testimony is talking about Christ himself, but he has questions because he doesn't know that. He needs understanding. He reads this text and it's starting to pique everyone's interest in there. Is it talking about the prophet himself? You know, maybe Philip is thinking, that sounds a lot like what just happened to Stephen. Here's a man just serving the Lord and he was unfairly crucified. And so he asks, what is this text talking about? You know, for a long time, the, the religion of Judaism would say that this text is talking about Israel. And they thought with all of their might that it was talking about that. I think what, what this eunuch was doing, what you and I maybe too often do, is we read Scripture and we kind of think it's talking about us. And so we want to place ourselves into it. Maybe, maybe this is talking about me? How many times have you not read the Psalms when you've had a trying time and you go, yeah, I've, I've been through a lot of suffering. And you're like, yeah, just like that in verse 6 or verse 8 and verse 9. And then all of a sudden it gets to verse 10 and it talks about a whole army is after you. And you're like, oh, I, mean, I was having a bad day, but a whole army isn't after me. Here is this eunuch who is ostracized in a lot of ways from the world, maybe by choice, maybe by birth. But either way, it is clear he is not like anyone else around him. And he was judged for it. He was sent out for it. He wanted to worship God in his temple. And he was told he can't go in. And, and if your mind starts tracking too fast and you're not being led by what the word says, you might think, I'm, I'm actually kind of like this guy in Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. I too have been humiliated and I too have suffered. Maybe this is talking about me. So he asks Philip, is this talking about the prophet, about himself or someone else? And so here, that monumental moment where God has crafted ever so carefully all these things into place. Chapter after chapter, we read this, but imagine being there for the first time. Is he talking about the prophet or is he talking about someone else? All history unfolds itself. All history up to this point would say he's talking about the nation of Israel. So who is he talking about? To Philip, the answer was simple. Isaiah here is talking about the coming Messiah who would be crucified and humiliated. But from there we see things that, man, just those two verses, that, that's not good enough. So what you have in those two verses is you have an agent of God who's humiliated for God's purpose. All that is true. But what Philip does from there is he takes those where the eunuch would see himself and go, okay, I, I can work with that. An agent of God used for humiliation, which ultimately brings more glory back to God. Maybe that's where I fit into this story. 
Like, I'm an agent of God, right? I'm a God-fearer, and I've been humiliated, so maybe this text is still, even though it's talking about Jesus, maybe it's still in a large way talking about me. But what Philip does there is from there, he starts expounding and exposing the other verses around it. And even broadly beyond that, the whole testimony of Scripture where yes, it is necessary for Jesus to be an agent of God, the chosen Messiah, the very Son of God, to be humiliated. But it wasn't just that he was humiliated, it's that he was crucified. Not just separated, but alienated from all of God's goodness and then rose from the dead. What, what this passage is talking about and what Philip would have told This Ethiopian eunuch is it's not just about an agent of God who would be humiliated, but it's actually talking about the lamb who would fully be the sacrifice for the people of God for all eternity. Vicarious atonement is the word that you might see here if you study theology or if you Google later. Vicarious atonement, which says that Jesus by his death is a offering for the sins of God's people. No more would God see God's people and see their sins, but God would see God's people and see what Jesus did for them. It's amazing that he did this from this text. It's inspiring and instructing, instructed to the rest of us. How many times could someone say, hey, I'm sitting here in like Proverbs 20. What is happening? And we could just explain the scriptures to them from that point. Here, God sovereignly met this eunuch where he was, being ostracized, maybe humiliated, on his way back home, maybe wondering what in the purpose, what in the reason all this purpose is for. He met him where he was, which we often do when we evangelize to other people. Let me hear where you are, and then let me give you more than you ever could ask for. What this man was given was absolute hope from this text, and God sovereignly put it all together where this man sovereignly and amazingly read from Isaiah 53 and all of God's goodness was explained to him on this chariot ride. One person described this as sovereignty on fire. It was turning the tracks in such a way that there was only smoke behind it. So what does Isaiah 53 say to us if it was important for him to know? What does it say to you and me in the text of Isaiah 53? And then pulling a little bit from Isaiah 52, we see this figure described as God's servant who will be exalted by the kings of all the world. And yet he was subjected to intense humiliation and suffering like a societal outcast. Yet he is said to bear the sufferings of all of God's people so that in the effect of his sacrifice, he is a guilt offering and God is completely satisfied. Like never before, God is satisfied when Christ would come and be crucified. Christ suffers here without complaint and is eventually killed and buried, and somehow he will see, not just three days later, he will know the effect that this has on God's viewing him and his people. He sees us now as as Jesus' brothers and sisters. He sees Jesus as the exalted Savior, the one who is truly talked about as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Moments from now, we're going to sing a song that talks about the man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners, often overlooked, ruined sinners, 
to reclaim God in dying for God's people reclaims what he says is his. You are mine and by his death we become his. So the natural response, though we only have four words and I wish we had like a thousand of them, our response is hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame, our scoffing and rudeness in our place, condemned he stood sealed our pardon with his blood, sealing. You think about what it means to seal something. It means to contain it in such a way that nothing can go in and nothing can go out. Sealed our pardon with his blood to where nothing can be said against you. Looking at a eunuch, testifying to the truth of Isaiah 53, look, man, You have been ostracized and will never be again. You've not been let in the temple, but let me tell you about a temple that has come for you. And that's what seals him. Isaiah proclaims that the Messiah was grossly mistreated and his death was unjust, though through this injustice, one without guilt would bear the punishment of his people. This atonement This substitution is the only thing that will matter to any of us. Christ in the place of sinners, the guiltless now being offered for the guilty, the righteous now being placed up in front of the God of the universe for the unrighteous. Jesus himself is the substitute. So the question is, do you you see him like that? For whatever reason you're here, do you see Jesus as this person? The the offering of absolute pardon. The, The Savior who is the only thing that can save you from your own self and more importantly from God's wrath. Oh, Christian, do you worship with joy in the same way that when you just read faintly Isaiah 53, you can sing the anthems that we have for thousands of years and non-Christian, do you have the conscience of your heart that is burdening you in the same way that this eunuch is? You are not outside of the sovereign hand of God and you are here for a reason. You're here for the same reason that that eunuch was here. You've got to respond begging you, please respond, repent of your sins in the same way that this eunuch would see to be repentant of his own sin, calling out for the Lord to be his rescuer. Friend, if you are here and you're not in Christ, oh, please just do it. Respond to the Lord. He's offering himself out to you as your only substitute. John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The Son of God, God himself is laying down his life for people to respond. The prophet is calling for you to see the Son of God this morning. This very Messiah ought to be screaming out to you just like it providentially was screaming out to the eunuch. Respond, repent, believe in this Messiah that all of the world has been longing for for years and years. Philip was next led to witness to the Ethiopian where he unpacked the scriptures. That's what it means to evangelize. That's what it means to be a witness of God as you just unpack 
God's glory to other people. Whether it's through memorizing verses and just telling people what is said about God in Romans or whether just testifying to what God has been doing for generations or generations, but you are using God's words that have been given to you and you place them in front of other people. Again, testimonies and testimonies, when faced with the words of God, we're the ones that fall on our knees. The Spirit of God makes the message of the Savior so prevalent in this man's state of sin, this state of outsideness. Jesus redeems him by regenerating his heart. And it's like opening up the chest and all of God's glory is poured into it in such a way that our natural response is just to call out to him to save us and to love him as he loved us. The Spirit here makes the scriptures but especially the effectual or especially the effectual means by convicting and converting this sinner. We we see here glimmers or loud pronouncements of what many of us might call God electing this person to himself, that before anything, in God's sovereignty, he didn't just know this Ethiopian eunuch like 40 days before when he may have started his travel, but he knew him. And because he loved him, and because he chose him for himself, all of these at the right time in his life would happen. And his response was one of just pure rejoicement and excitement where God opened him up and poured himself into it. So the doctrine of election or when God chooses us, it gives us absolute comfort and that the God of the universe not only controls all things, but actually in the midst of controlling all things, loves me. It gives us encouragement to go evangelize where Paul would talk about, I know that there are people in that town and I'm going to go find them, not with my own compass, but with the word. So we look at our kids and you go, I don't know why I'm your parent, but I'm going to give you the word. You look at your parents. I don't know why you're my parent, but I'm going to give you the word, a coworker, a friend, some random person in the street where God's spirit places you in front of them. And the best thing that you can give them is not an answer to their question, but hope that is fulfilled within the scriptures as it opens up. Friends, we see that these hard, big truths actually give us true comfort where God is encouraging us to get on the chariot and speak the word of God to his people. So we see the movement of the spirit making all of this happen. And when the spirit comes, there's the message of the savior that takes place. But now quickly at the final end of this message, we see certain marks of the saved. Certain marks of the saved. Verse 36, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. One of the marks of what it looks like to be a Christian is to be baptized. To to show that physical representation that you have actually died to yourself and you have been risen by the Lord and are part of him. Baptism is just this outward, amazing, impactful sign of the gospel saying that you are not your own. You are a part of someone new. Your soul has been washed from the guilt that you deserve, and now you are raised to new life with Christ. Baptism is something that has been given to Christians for millennia now to show that we are not ourselves, but we are a part of a new fountain that flows with love. 
Baptism is for every believer. And so it wouldn't be hard to imagine that at the moment when Philip was talking to this eunuch, when he was expounding the scriptures to him, that he would, of course, get to what was happening with all the Christians there, repent and believe and be baptized. So it was with instinct that the mark of this new believer sees water and goes, I want that right now. Stop the chariots. Now, many of us might not be baptized for several reasons. Maybe it's just ignorance. You don't know better. You, you should be baptized if you're a believer. You should be baptized if you're a Christian, marking yourself, showing the sign of your regeneration. Maybe it's because you're afraid of the religious complications. Like, I really love the Lord because it's not by anything that I do. Man, when I... I'm baptized, it just seems like it's something more that I have to do. You, you, want, you want my tithe and you want me to be baptized. You want me to come on Wednesday night once a month, do the Lord's Supper. I don't want to do all these things. Friend, friend, I wonder how you would proclaim Christ to others if you are not even proclaiming Christ to him through your baptism. What does it look like to be an isolated Christian, not being a part of baptized believers? How would you testify Maybe you're just not seeing the importance. I would encourage you, if you don't see baptism as very important, come to a baptism ceremony at this church. The the tears that people see when they're seeing a brother or sister being dropped down into the water and raised, that's not just emotion. That's a sign of the reigning king who has bought that person with their blood. It's an important sign because it testifies to the power of God that even this person can deny himself because the Lord saved him. So friend, a mark of a Christian is one of baptism. Secondly, a mark of a Christian is just someone who goes on rejoicing. Philip here baptizes the eunuch and right when he raises him up, he disappears Much like we would see in places like Ezekiel or in the Kings, he's transported to another place and the eunuch doesn't do anything else but just keeps on rejoicing. The circumstances of the world, friends, may be here or there or I may be here or there, but as long as I am redeemed, I have a joy that cannot be stopped by anyone in front of me. You would imagine that he would get back into his chariot and keep on going and wouldn't be quiet to anyone about his salvation. In fact, historically, so Irenaeus would say that this person, this eunuch in this book actually became the missionary to all of Ethiopia. And that lineage of Christians in Africa stems from this person. And don't you know that the power that's stemming from this person is not just one of conquest, but one of joy. The radiating joy of the salvation that we have in our lives is contagious. So he's baptized. He was rejoicing. But then also we see that Philip here has a mark of a Christian too. Last mark of the saved is that Philip just continues his call. Look back up in verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I mean, you you gotta imagine the whirlwind that this guy has been through in the last months. Being saved, 
being called out to serve tables, being taken up to Judea and into Samaria, now down to Gaza, and now he's transported to Azotus. And, and as he's just going north, I don't, I don't know why he was going north, but as he was going north, continuing the call of the Savior, he was just preaching the gospel, sharing the good news. He couldn't do anything but, but testify to what the Lord's work did. He was so in tune with the Spirit that when an angel came, he reacted. He was so in tune with the Spirit that when the Word came, he just talked about it. He was so in tune with the Spirit that as a Christian, he just testified to the risen Lord, testifying to all the acts that had been done before him. Now, these are extraordinary circumstances in this text, are they not? In in concluding, we see that as these are extraordinary circumstances, these are actually very ordinary means. Spirit, the Word, the, the inner joy of what it means to realize you're a Christian. This was no mere coincidence, but further evidence of the Spirit's activity in this whole incident. Jesus, having died on the cross and raised from the dead, accomplished the atonement for sinners to be saved, but he wasn't just done with those around him. He was reaching out through Jerusalem and into Judea and into Samaria, and now this glimmer, this small glimmer, seeking the echoes of the past, now this small, it's like a tiny little trail of kindling that is, as the Spirit blows and moves, it is going to ignite the end of the earth. Philip, in coming from Samaria, was sent further than any witness before him. And the gospel is now being placed in the hands of a treasurer to the high queen of Ethiopia. Here lies the glimmers of transforming grace about to be set ablaze in Africa. And Philip just continues on north, continuing to do the works of the Lord by the power of the Spirit, with the power of the gospel in his word. Later, if you keep reading, you will see that Philip and with some amazing others are being moved by God to take this no longer south, but also spreading to north, to east, to west, to the end of the earth. The Spirit moves, and when he moves in people, power is the only thing that lays in front of us. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice at the fact that your salvation of our souls, your saving effect of us allows us to not only see and find joy in the testimony of your people like in this chapter, but also it gives us absolute hope that what you started you will bring to completion. God, we ask that you gift us in unique ways within this church to continue to be agents of your mercy and your grace as you are not done saving people we know and that we will be testimony givers to your glorious grace. Father, we sing about you. You are the man of sorrows who took our place. You are the man through your son's death who bore what we deserved, and yet you give us absolute life. And so we say with joy, thank you and amen.